Thank you for tuning into this sermon from New Life Student Ministries. Our goal is to inspire, equip, and support our students and families with biblically rich and God-centered teaching. These messages are meant to be supplemental and not substitutional for our weekly gathering. We hope this sermon is a blessing to you and your spiritual walk. If you got your Bibles, Judges chapter 4, that's where we're going to be tonight. We're going to hop right in. We have a really Really unique story uh, in the Old Testament that we're going to go over. If you have not been here, uh, this is week three uh, in the book of Judges. This is the seventh book in the Old Testament. We're, we're kind of an interesting space here. We have Israel's come out of Egypt. Um, they've come out of the wilderness. They're into the promised land. Their leader Joshua has died and they have no king. Uh, and the premise of this whole book is in Josh, or Judges 17, verse 6, where it says, And in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so what we have is God kind of operating at a unique place in history right here, which is why the title of this series is God is King. And so we've kind of watched over and over again uh, as the, Israel's kind of done the same cycle. They sin, God gives them over to their sin, they are in slavery, They hit the point of sorrow, God raises up a judge, and he saves them. And we're going to see a a repetition of that cycle right here. Judges chapter 4, verse 1, bear with me. And the people of Israel again, everyone say again. Again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army, was Sisera who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. This is like varsity level reading tonight, okay? So like bear with me, bear with me. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he, he being Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, gathering 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And Deborah said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord, for the Lord will set Sisera into the hand of a woman." Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zeananim, which is near Kedesh. My goodness, these words are getting harder. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim in the river Kishon. 
And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into, her, into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until he went down into the ground, until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. I love this sentence. So he died. <laughs> Period. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera, dead, with the tent peg in his temple. Pay attention here. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to which all God's people said. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you, we love you, we love you. And we thank you for the privilege and the gift and the honor and the grace and the mercy that it is to gather here April 7th on a Wednesday night to worship you, to praise you, to receive from you, to open your word and have you speak to us. So, Father, I pray that as we engage with this text tonight, you would speak, you would teach us, you would show us who you are, you would draw us to yourself, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to uh, see and minds to understand and hearts to believe. We thank you, we bless you in your precious and holy name and all God's people said, amen. Woo, 23 verses, Judges chapter 4. We got a lot going on here. Um, we got three different judges kind of in this text. But the main one that we see here is really unique. Because this is the first time in scripture we see God raise up a woman. Let me hear all the ladies in the house. Yeah. He raises up a woman and her name is Deborah. And the cool thing about this woman is like, there's really nothing ever bad said about Deborah in this text. And what I also love about this text is that in every other account, we see that Israel's struggling and so God raises up a judge. But with Deborah, we actually see he's actually already raised her up and she's already judging Israel 
before they even cry out. So that was a lot of verses, 23 to be exact, and a lot happened, so let me summarize. We have Ehud who has just died, okay? After 18 years of being oppressed by the Moabites, okay? We get 80 years of peace and tranquility for Israel. And then they do again, everyone say again. Again, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They begin to worship the gods of the Canaanites. They begin to hold fast to the traditions of the Canaanites instead of who God has called them to be. So what does God do? He gives them over to what they ask for. I wanna be clear with this. What, what happens here is not a consequence to Israel. They are asking to go and abandon their God and engage with the gods and the livelihood of the Canaanites. So God gives them over to it. And for 18 years, they wrestle and they struggle. They wrestle and they struggle, 18, 20 years. And so they begin to cry out. And what God already has is he's already appointed this woman named Deborah as a judge of Israel. And so what they've seen of Deborah so far, she kind of sits under this palm tree. They call the palm of Deborah by Ramah and Bethel. And the people of Israel come to her and they'll inquire upon her. And she will hear from the Lord and she'll speak. And one of the unique things about Deborah is she's not just a judge. She's not just the commander and leader of Israel. She's also a wife to a man named Lapidoth. What a cool name. And she's also a prophetess. In other words, she has the ability to go, thus saith the Lord. And so she calls to her the commander of the armies of Israel, Barak, who's kind of a, what seems to be a timid guy. And she says, look, now is the time. Go ahead and rally your men from Naphtali and from Zebulun, and you're gonna raise up 10,000 and you're gonna go take on Sisera. Sisera, the general of the king Jabin of the Canaanites, she's like, you're going to go take him out, even though he's got 900 chariots of iron. Now, for our context, what they're simply saying here is, we want you to raise up a bunch of people with bow and arrows and go take them to a gunfight. This is what's taking place here, 900 chariots of iron. We got kind of the latest form of war technology in the day in the hands of King Jabin. And so Barak goes... I will only go if you go with me, Deborah. And she says, okay, I will surely go to you, but let me go ahead and prophesy and let you know that the glory of this battle will not go to you, it's going to go to a woman. And so in his mind, he's thinking, okay, maybe the glory will go to Deborah. Deborah knowing that it's actually going to go to a different woman who's a housewife in a tent. And so what happens? They go and they rally at Mount Tabor. They have 10,000 men. Sisera comes out with his army and God routes Sisera, subdues them. All of the men in the chariots die and Sisera gets off his chariot and runs. And he finds himself in the tent of the wife of Heber, the Kenite, Jael. And she says, come on inside, I'll take care of you. She puts a rug or something over him. And he asks for a drink of water and she gives him a glass of milk. And he falls asleep. And then this savage doll, she gets a tent peg and like a, a mallet. And it says, scripture says, she quietly worked her way over to him and drives a tent peg through his temple into the ground. That's fine. I mean, straight up. Like that is, that's savage. And then verse 21, the author says, and God, God subdued King Jabin. No credit to Deborah or Barak or Jael, but to God. 
And here's the thing. Every time we approach scripture, this is the first question that we need to ask. What does this text tell us about God? What did those 23 verses tell us about God? And there's a lot of things that we can answer with that tonight. But what I want to center on, and I think the God statement already went up, is this. God empowers. Everyone say empowers. Empowers. This is a really interesting word. Let me define it to you the way Google defines it. Empowers is to give one the authority or the power to do something. To give one the authority or the power to do something. So what I'm saying here is that God gives his people the power and the authority to do something. The question is what? And I think we actually see him empower his people to do three things in this text. And I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i define it with the way I think he speaks through each kind of three of the main characters of this text. Or the three judges, if you will. And I want to start with Barak. The first thing that I think God empowers us to do in this text is he empowers us to obedience. God empowers us to obedience. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, I talked to you about how disobedience is the root to unfaithfulness. When we walk in disobedience and we put that in the soil of our lives, what grows is unfaithfulness. And we see this with Israel. The second they begin to disobey God, what comes as a product of it is they begin to fall in love with the gods of the people of the the, the land. They begin to engage with the culture and ways of the inhabitants of the land and they forsake, they are unfaithful to who God has called them to be. But I want you to notice something in this story. And I want you to see here, let's go ahead and put verse six and seven up on the screen. This is Deborah. Deborah sent and summoned Barak the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Okay, stop. I want you to notice something here. It's past tense language. In other words, what Deborah is saying is, do you remember, God's already commanded you to do this. He's already spoken to you. You already know. Go Gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera. This is God talking. The general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And listen here, I will give him into your hand. So Deborah's looking at Barak and she's saying, God has already commanded you. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Brothers and sisters, can I just say something to you tonight? Obedience is always, always, always better than revelation. Let me explain what I mean by that. Obedience is always better than revelation. I would sit here and tell you that thousands of times as a pastor, I've sat with people and they come and they tell me all the time, If God would just speak, or if the word of the Lord would just come to me, or if God would just let me know what he wants me to do, things would be good. And I got to be honest with you tonight. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir with that one. I probably ask God that question and wrestle with that thought a hundred times a day, every day. God, if you would just speak, if you would just give me a word of the Lord, Everything would be good. And I need you to hear me. 
we get so focused on the future, we get so focused on what's next, that instead of holding fast to what God has called us to do, we keep asking God for what he's asking us to do. And I need you to hear me say, obedience is better than revelation. Instead of asking God what he's calling you to do, start asking the question, Lord, what have you called me to? And how can I hold it really, really well? Now here's the thing, there's two people groups in this room tonight, generally speaking. There are those who are here and the truth is you are here because a friend invited you, whatever, but you don't follow Jesus. Maybe from the world's perspective, it's like we'd say there are Christians, there are non-Christians. There are those who follow Jesus in this room. There are those who don't follow Jesus in this room. I want to help you real practically for a second. For those of you who don't follow Jesus and you're here and you're asking, what does obedience look like? The answer to that is this. The God of the universe, the God who created you is inviting you into relationship with him tonight. He's inviting you to repent and to surrender your life to him. That's what obedience looks like. And I'm going to get into what, how he does that at the end of this message. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, two questions that you can ask yourself to know whether you are being obedient or not. First is this. Is there anything that you are doing that you need to let go of because it's not who Jesus has called you to be? Is there anything that you are doing that you need to let go of because it's not who Jesus has called you to be. And the second question you can ask is, is there anything you're not doing that you need to lay hold of because that's who Jesus is calling you to be? Are you with me? Two questions to, to filter. Are you being obedient or not? or not? Is there anything you're doing that you shouldn't be doing because that's not who Jesus has called you to be? The second, is there anything that you are not doing that it's time to lay hold of, Okay. God empowers to obedience. He gives Barak the opportunity again to respond and obey. You with me? God empowers us to obedience. But the second thing that we see God empower us to, to do is, is this, and bear with me, is empower us to go with. God empowers us to go with. And we see this one in the life of Deborah. The next verse is eight and nine. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. This is the commander of the armies of Israel talking to Deborah. And he says, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And Deborah said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. He says, he looks at the judge of Israel, a woman. Now why this is so significant is at this time, this age, a woman wasn't even counted to, to even be perceived as a human being by men. They would have been counted as property. They would have been counted as an object. And yet we have the general of the armies of Israel looking a woman in the eye as she is calling him to obedience. And he says, I won't go without you. Now, scholars kind of debate two things here. There's either one, like this guy was just full of fear and he didn't want to go and he was really skittish, or two, 
He just knew that the presence of the Lord was with Deborah and this woman knew God. And he did not want to go to war without her. Either way, the reality is the same. He won't go without her. And I want you to pay attention. Can we put those verses back up on the screen, Grady? What she says. She says, I will surely go with you. I will surely go with you. The last verse. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Let me ask you a question. You ever had a moment in your life where you ask somebody to do something that you're not willing to do yourself? You realize like how empty of a statement that is? When I was like in second grade, I was like seven, eight years old, my family, we used to go back to Oklahoma every Thanksgiving for Thanksgiving. And we'd go to my grandparents' house, we'd all come together, and we're at this kind of point where my mom had several siblings, and then you got like kind of layers of cousins, okay? You kind of got like the oldest cousins who are like too cool for school, they don't like having any fun, they're really lame, okay? Then you had like the second layer of cousins who were like all the kids who like to play, right? And this is where I was. I was in like the seven, eight, nine, six range. You all play together. Then you got the babies who they're just there. They're just, they're just there, okay, right? And so I'm in this stage of like fun and I got two cousins, Caleb and Allie, and we were thick as thieves. We just like to play. All the older cousins, they'd go out and they'd play card games, they'd do whatever. We'd play hide and go seek in the house, that sort of thing. The whole family's downstairs playing games, eating food, doing what adult people do. And all three of us were in the guest bedroom upstairs. Now, at this time, this is 19 years ago, my goodness, okay. 19 years ago, cell phones weren't really like a thing. But we had these things called landlines. Now, like if you're in sixth grade in this room, you probably have no clue what this is. Houses used to have house phones, House phones. And in order for your friends to contact you, they, they called the house phone. And these house phones, like when they got really nifty, they, you could like pull them, detach them. They had a little antenna. You dial the number. And if they were really like savvy, they still had a cord attached to them. You pull them off and you dial. Okay. We're sitting in this room and I look at my cousin Caleb. Allie's standing right there. And I said, Caleb, I dare you to prank call 911. I'm seven years old. I had... And he looks back at me and he goes, he goes, no, you do it. I was like, I won't do it. I'm from Colorado. If I go to prison, I can't go home. You live here. You live here. Call him. Call him. Then I do what every good cousin does. I ask for support. I look at Allie and go, right? You should call him. And Allie's like, yeah. <laughs> you should call him. About three minutes, we go back and forth yelling at one another. Prank call 911. No, you do it. No, you do it. So me and Allie give up. We're like, oh, he's not going to do it. And we give the passive aggressive. You don't have the courage to do it. And we walk out of the room. I kid you not, like 45 seconds later, we hear the phone slam back down. Tim and Allie, what? I just prank called 911. And we came running back and we're like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. He's like, yes, I promise I did. We're like, prove it. Sure enough, he picks back up the phone, 911. 911, what's your emergency? <laughs> Hung it back up. So all of a sudden, there's like courage in the room. So he looks at me and he goes, well, I did it. You should do it. So I'm like, and then Allie, she just switches teams like that. Looks right at me and goes, yeah, Tim, you do it. So I pick up the phone, 911. 911, what's your emergency? <laughs> I kid you not, I'm not exaggerating. 
we prank called 911 like seven or eight times. <laughs> seven or eight times until the adrenaline rush was gone. Then we were like, let's go play hide and go seek. Put up the phone, we walk away. Five minutes later. Front door of my grandparents' house. Our parents all get up. They look outside. There's a cop car in the driveway. So they go and they open the door. They say, ma'am, sir, we just want you to know we received seven or eight prank calls from children to 911 from this address. We just want them to know that this is a very serious circumstance. Now, remind you, this was 19 years ago when children got whippings. So <laughs> you have all three of us on the stairs looking down. We see the cops there, and it's like the wrath of God in our parents' faces turning back up towards, towards, towards the stairs. Needless to say, we were all whipped thoroughly and put on timeout for an hour in separate rooms so that we couldn't encourage one another to do anything wrong. Now, the reason I give you this story is because there's something about asking somebody to do something that you're willing to do yourself. Am I right? Asking somebody to do something you're willing to do yourself. I want you to hear me. Nine out of ten, if not, I'll go as far as ten out of ten. People who come to hear the gospel, the good news, they won't continue walking with the Lord for this reason. Whoever invited them does not go with them. I want you to hear me say that again. 10 out of 10, the reason why somebody's going to walk away from the Lord when they're invited to come hear the good news is because those who invited them did not go with them. And I want you to see and learn from what Deborah is doing right here. God empowers his people to go with. The gospel is not, hey, go and do you. It's let us go together. Let us go together. I love Deborah's response here. She goes, surely I will go with you. I'm coming. I'm standing beside you. I know you lack courage. I know you lack faith. I'll stand right there with you. I know life will get hard. I know your parents don't know Jesus. I know that you don't know how to read scripture. I know that you do not know what it looks like to follow Jesus, to pray. Let me show you how. Let me do it with you day by day by day. He created it so that we would do it together. You want to know why? Because he created us not to be alone or in isolation. You were never meant to follow Jesus by yourself, ever. And every time we do, we begin to crumble and suffocate in our own faith. God empowers his people to go with. Are you with me tonight? Final thing, God empowers us to conquer sin, conquer our sin. Verse 21, I love this story. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. What a savage. Then she went softly to him and she drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. <laughs> so he died. So he died. 
you got a Bible in your hand, whatever version it is, so he died, so death found him, so he went skirt, skirt, whatever it's going to be, like underline that sucker. So he died and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, shh, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Okay, now this story is awesome. Like death is not awesome, but this story is awesome. I want you to pay attention symbolically what's taking place here. Sisera is the commander of Jabin's army, the Canaanites, okay? So what Sisera represents, okay, what Sisera represents is that which hinders Israel from embracing their God, okay? From seeing their God more clearly, from worshiping him more freely, okay? And what we are given then is a picture of Jael taking a tent peg and a hammer, sneaking to him, and not just like injuring him or maiming him, but absolutely annihilating him, shoving like his temple into the ground, so he died. So he died. Okay, now I need you to hear me. I need you to hear me. God takes the enemies of his people very, very seriously. Very, very seriously. God takes anything that hinders his people from seeing him very, very seriously. To the point that he is willing to use a woman to take a a tent stake, a tent peg, and drive it through the temple of this man, Sisera. God is not interested in sharing lordship with anybody, with Israel. Now, here's what's unique about this story. If you go back to Joshua 11, God commands Israel to take care of King Jabin and the Canaanites. And Israel didn't finish the job. They let them live. And you fast forward a book later, you have their sin that they refused to annihilate come back to haunt them. Hear me say, their sin that they refused to annihilate come back to haunt them. And so God empowers JL to take a tent bag and crucify all that hinders them from being with their God. God empowers. Now here's the question that is before us today. 2021, April 7th, is this. How is it that God empowers us to do these things today? How does he empower us to obey? How does he empower us to go with? And how does he empower us to conquer our sin and death? The Apostle Paul gives us the answer in Galatians 2.20. Put this, this verse on the screen. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me break this down for you. Paul's saying, as a follower of Jesus, I have been crucified with Christ. The old man was put on the cross. The new man who lives today, that's Christ living in me. Why is it that Christ living in us is so important? What's so special about Christ's life? Let me show you. Can you put the last slide on the screen, Grady? Jesus does these three things. Jesus embodies obedience. Perfectly. Philippians 2.8, I don't have it for the screen. The Apostle Paul says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the epitome, the apex of obedience to the Lord. But Jesus is not just obedient. Jesus is Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. You want to know what makes the Christian story so unique? Is that the Christian story gives a picture of a God who gets off his heavenly throne. And he doesn't just look at his people and say, get your act together and come be with me. He goes down into the darkest part of human suffering to make a way to be with his people. To not just say, look, there's a God, but to say, here I am. It's me. Jesus is Emmanuel. And Jesus conquered sin and death not by driving a stake through the head of the leader of the Canaanites. He conquers sin and death by having stakes driven through his hands and his feet with a crown of thorns shoved in his head, beaten and lashed 39 times, and then ultimately put on a cross. Can I get the worship team to go ahead and come up and join me? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Brothers and sisters, for those of you who follow Jesus, how are you obedient? How do you walk with people? And how do you conquer the sin that's in your life? Hear me. You let Jesus take over your life. You let Jesus take over your life. Why? Because when God looks at you, it's not your obedience that God sees. It's Jesus' obedience that God sees. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your ability to be present with people. He sees his ability to be present with you. When he looks at you, he doesn't say, get your act together. He puts his son on a cross for you and for me. Why? So that in 1 Corinthians 5, 55, 56, 57, the author can say in echoing the words of Isaiah, Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? Death, hell, the grave has absolutely no more power. It does not have more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. So follower of Jesus, hear me tonight. 
God empowers. He empowers you to follow him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul in the life of Jesus Christ. God empowers you to look at the lost, the lonely, the orphan, the immigrant, the foreigner, those who do not know Jesus, and to get off your high horse and to go walk with them. You guys, look at our generation, look at our city, look at the way our world is divided right now. You want to know why we're so divided? It's because we are, it's so much easier to sit on this side of my phone, on this side of my iPad, look at social media and critique and judge and lambaste and go after those from a distance. It's a lot harder to say, come follow me as I follow Christ. In the same way that I'm calling you to a life of holiness, I'm calling my life to a life of holiness. We don't look, we don't judge, we don't discern from a distance. We get off the stage, we get out of the walls of the church and we be the church. We show people what it's like. Show people what it's like to have found the well that never runs dry. Show people what it's like to eat the bread of life. Show people what it's like to find living water. Show them, show them that your life has been changed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Show them why following Jesus is better. Show them why loving thy neighbor as thyself is the way that Jesus came to redeem his world. Jesus empowers you to go with. Hear me. I know that there is pain in this room. I know there's addiction in this room. I know there are things and there's a side of yourself in this room that nobody sees. I know that there's a side to you that struggles that nobody sees. I know that you have a family and a home and situations going on that nobody sees. And trust me, I know, I know what it feels like to be hopeless. I know what it feels like to go, I don't have a way. I know what it feels like to feel like you're at the bottom of a barrel and brokenness is on every side up and down. And I need you to hear me. It's because of that side of you. It's because of that hidden side of you. It's because of the addictions you're wrestling with, the sin in your life, that God nailed his son to a tree. Not for you to get your life together, but for you to receive his life. The gospel does not put the onus of taking care of your brokenness on you. He puts it on his son. Hear me, that's why this is good news. That's why it's good news. If you are not a follower of Jesus in here tonight, let me tell you. Let me tell you about a God who has come running for you tonight. Let me tell you about a God who wants to satisfy your soul. Let me tell you about a God who wants to bring you ultimate and eternal joy as a product of your suffering. He's here.
obedience to him to you looks like repenting from the way of life that says you can figure it out or anything else can figure it out and surrendering to a life with Jesus. Can you stand with me? Can we put the prayer of confession on the screen? Ready? This is what the people of God build their lives upon. This is what we build our lives upon. Not our ability to be obedient, not our ability to go with, not our ability to conquer sin and death, but Jesus' ability. God has made a way for us to follow him. He has made a way for us to be in relationship with him. He has made a way for our lives to be satisfied. And that way has a name, and his name is Jesus. And every time we come here and we say this prayer, it's our way of saying, I'm reorienting my life obediently back into the way of Jesus. When you say these words, in many ways you're saying, God, come, have your way in my life. So I want to invite you into that tonight. If you follow Jesus or if you feel something stirring inside you to follow Jesus, to say this prayer with us, let's say it. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Brothers and sisters, receive him. Receive him. As the team leads us back into worship here, receive him. He is for you. Thanks again for listening to this message from New Life Student Ministries. If you want to keep up with what's happening with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NL Student Ministries.